Good afternoon. Welcome to the panel. RZ National, Moata Tamaira and Sam Johnson with Mel Wallace Chapman. Now, first up on a day when Russia rained missiles down on Ukrainian cities, killing at least 14 people, our government has imposed tailored sanctions on Russian oligarch Alexander, Alexander Abramov. Abramov owned a luxury lodge in Northland and had been developing an apartment complex in Auckland. He'll now be subject to a travel ban along with his family. Foreign Affairs Minister Nanaya Mahuta described the additional sanctions as a tangible way to express Aotearoa New Zealand's condemnation of Russia's invasion and its recent attempts to illegally annex regions of Ukraine. So just a, a few words on this with Al Gillespie, Professor of International Law at Waikato University. Professor Gillespie, welcome. Kia Wallace. So are Western countries moving to put more pressure on Russia with this latest escalation in Ukraine? There's a sequence of sanctions, and each time there's more aggression or illegal acts by Russia, you see an addition added to the list. This takes our list from 51 to 102 oligarchs, but other countries have gone further, and we may yet find that we have to do the same. What other sorts of measures might now be considered, Al? Well, the, the list of those who are close to the Russian military or to Putin may find their names on the list as the concerns grow. But we might find ourselves also moving into more sporting sanctions, diplomatic sanctions. Some countries are even talking about trying to prohibit Russian visitors coming to visit them. Mm. Certainly very serious uh, repercussions on this, uh, Sam. Yeah, Al, how much, um, we have to do something here, and it's good that government's making more moves, but how much are we punishing ourselves by stopping investment coming into New Zealand if he's, if he's a major tourism player and suddenly the projects are all stopped and the hotel apartment's going to sit empty? Uh, I think that the economic impact will be greater on New Zealand than it will on Russia, but you need to see the New Zealand contribution as part of the overall effort by the Western countries. It looks like the sanctions are about 6 to 10% reduction in the Russian economy in 2022. They are having an impact, but we have to stick together. Yeah, Sam? Yeah, I, I, think, I just think we've got to be careful here. This is, this is actually punishing ourselves more than it's punishing anyone else, and we, we need to look at what's the way that we can stand up and be firm on our views internationally without suffering domestically. I just think we've got, I just don't really agree if that's going to stop a development, then they probably shouldn't have been put on the list to make a small stand internationally. What do you think, Moata? I don't know. I mean, this mm. is big world stuff, right? But um, I, I mean, I, it seems to me that the 35% tariff on Russian imports might be more significant than a single um, Russian oligarch. Um, having said that, uh, if the price of caviar goes up, that's not going to be affecting me too much. Um, but I, but I do wonder. Like, I mean, I don't know the extent of um, Russian imports into New Zealand. Um, is that something that's um, going to be significant? That's but the tariffs been extended until twenty twenty five now. Mm. What, what you will see is that as New Zealand adds to its list of sanctions and people on the list, and also on the Russian products, Russia will respond in kind, and so they will put sanctions on some New Zealand individuals and more tariffs on our products. Al, in terms of uh, Putin's tactics today in resuming heavy shelling of Ukrainian cities, some extraordinary images coming out of Kiev, you know, uh, from car dash cams, very frightening and um, heartbreaking images. Um, how do you see that? I mean, civilian areas here seem to have been the target. There's no military objective that would legitimise these strikes. They are indiscriminate and they are disproportionate. And in the long term, all you do is you galvanise the people who are being bombed to want to keep fighting the Russians even more. 
All right, we'll keep abreast of this. Uh, Professor, for now, though, Professor Al Gillespie from Waikato, thank you very much for that. 11 past four, the panel. Well, it's been described as a world first. Farmers will start paying for their emissions from 2025. A price is put on both emissions of methane, mainly cow and sheep burping, and nitrous oxide emissions. That's your fertiliser enriched livestock urine. Climate change minister James Shaw, he said that half the greenhouse gases come from agriculture and were causing more extreme weather events that farmers were on the front line of. Fed farmers Andrew Hoggart, he said it would rip the guts out of small town New Zealand. Greenpeace lead climate campaigner Christine Rose said it fails to do its one job. So with us is Craig Bunt, Professor of Agricultural Innovation at Otago University. Professor Bunt, kia ora. So, yeah, a range of views on this. Um, Where do you think this proposal sits? Um, I think it's very, very sensible. Um, I think, though it sits a little in isolation, it would have been good to see it bring in the questions around exotics versus natives. Um, Having them as a separate conversation, I think, dilutes a bit of what um, today's discussion is all about and perhaps distracts in the wrong direction. So the levy pricing will be set through this rules-based process set by the government in consultation with agriculture, our sector, and, and, and iwi Māori with different prices for long-lived gases and biogenic methane, as I understand it. Is that the right way to proceed? I think separating the prices for the gases definitely um, makes sense. Methane has a residence, it hangs around in the air for 10 years. Um, some of the other gases for 100 and some of the other gases for hundreds of years. So it makes separate to, to treat them separately. Uh, setting the price, though, by government in consultation, maybe, maybe having something a little bit more independent would be better. Right, okay. Now, in terms of what the Fed, well, not Fed, well, your Fed farmers, Andrew Hoggard, and um, representative of farmers, but also remember the farmers are around the table as well. Uh, mm. Andrew Hoggard says, look, it's going to rip the guts out of small town New Zealand, but he also says that farmers may well convert their sheep and beef farms into trees. Is that a worry, or what's your thoughts? I think it's a worry because of this separate. Um situation we have of, of pines versus natives and not a, a clear indication of how one can be balanced against the other. Um, and, and so that's out of today's um, information. Um, so farmers may become carbon farmers. Um, they are still farming. Anything that's put into trees will still have to be managed, will still have to be essentially cropped. You can't just leave them there and, and, and they'll fix carbon forever. So the type of farming will change. I, th- I think um, where it takes up poorly productive land or can be used for erosion control, very good. This is why we have to look at exotics versus um, natives um, as well as uh, as part of today's discussion because it's, if it takes up valuable food-producing land, um, that's, that's a concern. In the same wow. way we're concerned about housing taking up valuable food producing land 
should we have the same conversation about land that's going to get locked away from from producing food? I understand. Yeah, uh, like the like the issue that we were talking about uh, with those very fertile soils and the likes of yeah. Pokakohe, for example. Uh, Moata, a world first for New Zealand, uh, agriculture paying their way from 2025 at this stage. Your thoughts? Um, this, is, this is well... Everyone. Mo- Moata first, Craig, and then you can come in. Um, th- this is well outside my area of expertise, but... Um, I think it's interesting that federated farmers are saying, using emotive language about it, ripping out the guts of rural New Zealand. But we know that climate change is real and it's happening and that we need to do something about it and we need to do it quickly. Um, I think there's this just general idea that we can just carry on doing the things that we've always done and not changing anything. And surely it's been signalled to farmers for I would say decades that the gases um, involved in farming are a problem for the climate. This hasn't just sort of come out of left field. We've all known this for a long time. So if you haven't been quietly preparing yourself for making changes to the way that you farm, then I have just to say that you've been sticking your head in the sand. Craig? I I, I would agree. wouldn't matter it wouldn't make much of a difference what the industry was um we'd have i'll start again sorry if we had a petrochemical based industry the size of our agricultural industry it would still be facing the same issues we have a unique situation that we're a developed nation where agriculture is the base of our economy and we've, we've seen this coming for a long time and talking with many farmers they know this is coming they know that our customers are expecting this uh, but also the large purchases of bulk material are expecting this. Those who finance agriculture, they're expecting this as well. So the customer's been sending signals for a long time. Oh, well, so not just the the pi- oh, I see. So in the pipeline for quite a while, we're talking to a professor of agricultural innovation at Otago, Craig Bunt, Sam. Look, I think this is really difficult. The government did need to do something here. Um, they've been working on it a long time with with a farming group. I'm a I'm a I'm a sheep and beef farmer. I was brought up on a sheep and beef farm. This is really difficult for all of our family uh, who are and, for, and my friends who farm. This is a big. It's not a. Tell you know, us more he, about heads, that. Heads haven't been in the sand, but how do you change your 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 um, dairy farm or sheep farm overnight or pay these? fees that come up. I think that's the change. it's not overnight, is it? It's it's not not, overnight. It's it's not overnight, but but it's big change. And it it can be done, so I think you have to point back to the rabbit disestablishment boards that happened in when the 60s, 70s, 80s, whenever that was. You know, we changed from rabbits to cows, and now we've got to change from cows to something else. But it's just, it's big shifts, and I think um, farmers naturally will feel quite assaulted by this and quite shocked because it's a huge change to quite a challenged business model already. So um, I really feel for farmers today. Um, And I also think, um, I think the government did have to do something and it's good they've gone out with it. There is a consultation period so I just think we need a really constructive debate on what is the right model because we do have to do something. You hearing this Craig? And we do have to change the levels of emissions. Craig? Yeah, totally agree. It's going to be a big shock so it'll be interesting to see the support that's there in place to help implement this, how it's going to be administrated, uh, administered. These details haven't come out yet. There's a list of technologies that could be uh, taken on board, but but there's no shopping. You, you can't go order these online yet. So how are these going to become available? How is, how is a farmer going to face what to choose? Uh, where's the information to help and assist there? So, yeah, it's going to be a shock, definitely.
Here's the, here's, the, here's, here's something for you, Sam. I mean, you're from a sheep and beef background. Imagine this. You're sitting in a restaurant in Paris. You're sitting in a restaurant in New York, and you order something. You order the New Zealand uh, 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 beef and uh, or lamb, and you know, because the waiter tells you that um, this is the country, the one country in the world where farming emissions are priced. I mean, wouldn't it, imp- wouldn't it improve yeah. your product? I, I your, th- your, pro- your price would go up, mate. Th- I think the prices will go up, and that's okay, and it could improve the product. But I think that's the transition period and being clear on it's what's that going to look like. It's an opportunity well, so for you. Why are you, <laughs> why are you being so negative about I, it? I think it is, it is an opportunity for us, but it's just such dramatic shift. Like, to meet our carbon emissions, so on a personal level, we all have to cut uh, our emissions in half based on what they were the year before, and then offset the other half. I mean, that is just such huge and change for an value. economy. And add value. We have Come to do on. it. Come <laughs> on. Uh, but I just think it's I'm just saying it's, it's going to be a shock, and it's hard, and I think the, right. the detail's not fully in it. Good on you. All right, and, uh, Professor Craig Bunt-Cura, thank you for your time. That's um, a Professor of Agricultural Innovation at Otago University. 20 past for the panel. Sam Johnson and Mwata Tamaira with me today. A petition with 8,000 signatures, was presented at Parliament today, calling for mandatory pay gap reporting. It's something we're here in Aotearoa are way behind on. The petition was organised by Mind the Gap campaign. It says workers and businesses want ethnic and gender pay gaps to be made public, and the government needs to listen. 75 businesses around the country, they're already on to it, and one of them, Z Energy. With us is Helen Sedcole, Chief People's Officer at Z Energy. Kia ora, Helen. Kia ora, Wallace. What was behind Z Energy's decision to push ahead with pay gap reporting? It's a really good question. We, um, we've been talking about the gender pay gap a lot in our business, and we have published it in our annual reports, and we've talked about it with our people. <clears throat> our chief executive actually publishes a report on it every year to our people internally. But we thought, actually, I think it's time for us to have this conversation more widely in our society rather than just actually have a few employers who are actually having a focus on this. What was the pay gap? Keep going, sorry. Yeah, one of the big things that we ended up having a conversation on was pay parity versus the pay gap because a lot of times we think we're doing a good job because we're paying the same people the same money for doing the same job. But the pay gap is actually a much bigger issue and it showed up real talent gaps for us uh, and, and where we needed to do some real work about building our, our female leadership capability in the business. Yeah. I was looking at the Mind the Gap uh, pay, uh, website and the, the analysis, recent analysis made show that a woman earning the current median wage, just over 26 bucks an hour, could receive 13 to $36 a week more if pay gap reporting legislation was introduced, and I thought, 2022, it's extraordinary that that gap, Helen, is actually really still there. Uh, look, I agree, Wallace. We've, we've had the, the compulsion to actually have pay equity for a number of years, but I think sometimes you've just got to do the first step and actually measure it first and understand where you are now before you can take action. It's a bit like standing on the scales. I have a rough view of my weight, but I really know what it is when I stand on the scales. Same thing with measuring the pay gap. Oh, that's a very interesting uh, an example analogy. I can sort of see that uh, 
very, very yeah. clearly a Moata. You, you think you know what uh, the scales might say, but you step on the scales and go, oh, okay, that's uh, what they are. What's your thoughts or questions for, on this uh, topic, Moata? Um, well, I've, I've been sitting here nodding madly as Helen's been talking. Um, and absolutely, anything that you're not counting, you're not really serious about changing. Um, so it, it absolutely is the first step to gather data. You've, you've got to gather data right. so that then you can see actually the size and shape of the problem. Do you remember when National was in power and they just rebuffed any questions about child poverty by saying, oh, well, we don't know. We're not counting that. Because you don't have to do anything about it if you're not paying attention. Um, so absolutely, I think that this is the way to go. And I'm re- yes, I would definitely like to have an extra $36 per week. Um, I've got a pet bus TV show to get up and running. That's going to need money. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, but, I, yeah, I was really shocked um, to see that yes, just by reporting, there's you get a 20 to 40% reduction in, in the gap. Okay. Stay so, there, Helen. Yeah. We'll get our other um, uh, panellists as well. Sam, your questions, your thoughts? Yeah, Helen, I was actually interested in... Uh, I've um, noticed Westpac led a couple of years ago with their, their report, which I thought was really good. Um, is, is it, how widespread do the big companies uh, do these reports? Are, are they? Is it a trend that more of them are doing it, or is, it, is, it, is this petition really asking for legislative pressure or sort of compliance that they must do it? It definitely is an increasing trend, and I think the Mind the Gap pay registry has been really interesting for us. So when we first signed up for that in February, 194 businesses signed up, but only 51 of them were reporting their gender pay gap. Interesting. So it is actually about just having a movement where it's okay to actually to, to talk about it, and it's not about having a zero gender pay gap in some instances. In some businesses, I had a great example where I was talking to um, – a chief executive of an engineering firm, where he said, my problem is I just can't get good female engineers. And if I hire a whole lot of graduates at entry level, my pay gap's going to look even worse. And I said, well, that's not, that's not a problem if it stays like that. If you're doing it to get yourself a really good pipeline of amazing engineers coming through your business, you'll see that change over time. So it's reporting it and seeing it move. Very good to have you on the program, uh, Helen Kiora. That's how Helen said, Cole, there, the Chief People's Officer at uh, Z Energy. Um, fair bit of feedback on uh, various things. Just, uh, just uh, take a look at. Uh, oh, I like this Mawata panel member's attitude. This is not my area of expertise. Then speaks intelligently on the subject. Refreshing. <laughs> You're welcome. Yeah, thank you for being on the panel. Um, and regarding the uh, the pet bus idea, uh, keep that tight, Mawata. People are loving it. Um, imagine moving some unusual pets. I love this idea. I'm thinking the odd, biting, rude parrot having words regarding the pampered pet brigade. Bring on the pet bus TV, uh, says uh, someone. So thank you for that. Now, 26 past for the panel. Lovely to have your company this afternoon. How we dress seems to be changing. <laughs> no better exemplified in what we're putting on our feet. For that Monday morning business meeting, you may now be just as likely to find people not in shiny leather heels, or shoes rather, or heels, but sneakers, barter bullets, your etnies, cushioned comfy trainers. But does there need to be some sort of standard, all summed up in a Guardian article, as politicians and CEOs slip off their shoes, are trainers now the smart choice? So, look, around the panel uh, on this one, um, here's someone says, someone says, 
Uh, oh, where is it? Uh, Annabelle says, times have definitely changed. My son wore Air Jordans with his dinner suit to the school ball this year, as did all his mates. Despite my reservations, I have to say, they all looked wonderful. <laughs> they definitely slayed, uh, quote-unquote. Moata, um, a business suit and big fat trainers, thoughts? Um, I actually wore a, a blazer and trousers and white sneakers to work um, the other day, and then I realised when I got there that I looked like Kamala Harris. But that's not a bad thing. Um, I, I, you know, I really think that like lockdown and working from home has just really made a lot of people realise, you know what, life is too short to not be comfortable, particularly women like some of those shoes that we wear are they're not built for comfort um i've got a colleague who actually has like slippers that she keeps under her desk at work um pops those on when she's working away and i've got to say i respect that um so yeah i have a lot of shoes that i'm currently not wearing because they're not the most comfy and i am wearing white sneakers right now okay white sneakers have been around for a while the white sneaker with everything yeah look i feel like it's been a while and fashion being fashion uh, it'll change to something. It'll be Birkenstocks. All right. Like well, you're, you you go along the likes of Liz Truss, Moata, Boris Johnson, Emmanuel Macron, Kamala Harris. You're you're in that camp. And we thought, gosh, if there's one person who wears suits and trainers, we talked about this in the newsroom, it'd be Sam Johnson. What are you wearing <laughs> and, and, right now? And, and I quite often do. I am wearing a, what are you a, wearing? a jacket, but I'm wearing a dress shoes because because uh, uh, put your feet up. Uh, there we are. It's a dr- nice brown dress shoes. Nice. See, <laughs> shiny, nice heels. I'm going to tell you right now, mate. That looks smart. Thank, well, that's and all I about style. That. You Thank see? you, Wallace. Yeah. It's, and I think I agree with Moata. It's about style. It's, if we get this wrong, it's a slippery slope to wearing yeah. pyjamas in bed and pyjamas yep. at the supermarket, which I yep. deeply disapprove of, and I think we all should. Couldn't agree more. <laughs> Couldn't agree more. There are standards, and Moata, it's, it's an example. This is, this is How can I say this nicely? Um, it can be a slippery slope, can't it? It can be... I can't be bugged. I can't be bothered. Yeah. I can't be bothered today, and I can't be bothered tomorrow. And guess what? I can't be bothered for the whole month. I'm just going to wear my white trainers to work the or whole your month. Or sheens. Or your sheens. Or your etnies. Yeah. Well, sorry, was there a question in there? <laughs> <laughs> What's if you want to on the slippery slope? Yeah, my which, which is, we know is a logical fallacy, by the way. What, what um, is that? I'm just going to gloss over the fact that you put me on a list with... Liz Truss and uh, Boris Johnson. <laughs> um, yeah, not comfortable with that. Uh, the the politicians wearing sneakers is very like I view that very cynically as a look at me, look at how relatable I am. Oh, okay. And, um, I don't think it would be an understatement. I mean, no, I think it would be an understatement to say it, that the Tories in the UK at the moment have a real relatability problem. So mm. uh, if they're turning in, and if Rishi Sunak's Turning up in places wearing sneakers. It I didn't be... think white sneakers were going to get political. Eh? <laughs> Everything's political, Sam. Um, you know, it'll be some it's spin doctors style. going, oh, you know, wear some jeans, wear some sneakers, make people think that you're an actual person and not like a bag the... of corruption and lies dressed in, like, in a human bag of skin did or you, whatever. Did you wear those for me, Sam, or do, are they actually your shoes? I actually they, I, I, they... I wear, I wear dress shoes every day because I work in a corporate office, even though I run a charity, and, I, you know, we 
we we dress to impress. We're trying but, to actually. Didn't you didn't you read the article, mate? This is it's it's not, this is not this is not the two thousands. It's twenty twenty two. We Sam. Have, I, I do casual Fridays, so we I, I often oh, wear uh, sneeze, uh, jeans and uh, white sneakers on a Friday. <laughs> I can't wear heels because of near shoes. Smart, trendy trainers, not running shoes, look great in my opinion, as long as they're stylists. From always in flats, says Bex. Uh, never trust a man in a suit. That's not who he is. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good quote, actually. And All I right. did wear these for you today, Wallace. Thank so. you, Sam. <laughs> thought, I thought so. You're on the panel on RNZ National. Lovely to be with you this afternoon. I am with Sam Johnson and Moata Tamara. It's time for headlines.